0: me Steve you know I really don't see the need I don't see much in church what I like to do in fact he said I like to go out into nature somewhere where there's like just a beautiful scene where it's peaceful and serene and he said and that's where I worship that's where God meets me and I said to him I get that that's a beautiful scene I can see that But I said, what happens in life if you can't find that place? What happens in life when it isn't serene and it isn't peaceful and your life's in turmoil? Is the logical conclusion then that God doesn't come and meet you there? I say that because as we just heard, Paul and Silas are on the way to a place of prayer. But they're not going to end up there. They're going to have a turn in their life that's going to take them to a place today that is not what we would expect, a place to find yourself in prayer. But that's exactly what we're going to see them doing in this place, in this jail. And God's going to meet them there in this powerful way, in this place, and change the lives of other people. I want to give you a little background on this passage This is what we call Paul's second missionary journey. He's come to this area, to Philippi. Philippi is a place where a Roman garrison was housed, soldiers. It's interesting because as Paul and Silas work in this area of Philippi, as people become believers as they hear the word of God, that word, based on our series title, diaspero, is going to go out from there. It's going to be carried By Roman soldiers, to all points of the empire, by people who become believers. But if you were going to talk about Philippi in that day, the one word that you would use to describe it is this, it is Roman. Roman, Roman. What do I mean by that? Philippi prided itself in trying to be just like the capital city of Rome. They loved being that way. They loved being a Roman city to imitate them in every way possible. There were very few Jews in Philippi, very few synagogues. Part of that was a result of the fact that in A.D. 41, the Emperor Claudius had ordered out of Rome itself, that city, the Jews, to be expelled. Philippi, wanting to be so Roman, followed suit and did the same thing in their town. So there's very few people that Paul finds when he gets there. A few handful of people who own some businesses that were important. So let's get into this again. Once, as Luke writes, we were going to the place of prayer where we were met by this female slave who had a spirit in which she predicted the future. And she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Predicting the future. The word that's used there is a similar word to, maybe you've heard in history, the Greek oracle of Delphi that could give some insight to some points in someone's future to help them and guide them. That's kind of the spirit that she had. But it's interesting that Dr. Luke, who is a physician, doesn't see this just as a spirit. Notice that he describes it as an affliction. He sees that this poor girl is bound by the spirit in this work that she is doing. And that she's owned by these men. And that she's disregarded and she's not important. And she's being exploited by these men in her world and in her life, which was so common in that, but isn't that uncommon in our world too? And Luke goes on to say, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. Now get this. Think of Pastor Mark and I walking down the streets of Rochester, and somebody's following us, shouting, Hey, these guys are pastors who will speak the word of life to you. We go to get a coffee. These guys are pastors who speak the word. It get a little annoying, don't you think? I mean, and it does. It annoys Paul finally after many days of this going on. So much that we heard that he turns around and he says to her, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command this spirit to come out of you. And immediately it did. And thereby is the problem. Because once that spirit's gone, she can't predict the future anymore. And so Luke goes on to tell us when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. There's a lot of words in there that should set off bells based on the background I gave you at the beginning. Remember, Philippi followed suit from Rome when Claudius put the edict to expel Jews. So that's the first thing they levy. They say, these are Jews. Boom, the crowd already is on their side because they're supposed to be expelled. Then they go on to say, hey, they're advocating customs. You know, it's kind of vague. They don't say what. They want to be specifically vague. That we Romans, so there's kind of that nationalistic cry, are forbidden to do. So they're really stirring up the crowd. But notice what's missing in there. All it says, first of all, that Luke records is that when the owners realized their hope of making money was gone, they did this. Do you hear anything about the girl? Any care for her? Any regard for her? Anything? Not at all. She was simply something to make them money. But Luke saw her as somebody afflicted. Luke saw her as somebody valuable. You know, we see that in the early Part of Christianity so much of Christians going out and valuing the person valuing their needs valuing and lifting the person up above what society that pagan society did when they would cast babies into garbage piles because that's what you did when you didn't want one the Christians would go out at night and rescue them they'd set up hospitals to care for people This is who the early Christians were. This is what they did. This is how they impacted the world. They became known for how they valued people. And all of the stuff that these guys are doing against Paul and Silas is stirring up that crowd to be like kind of mob rule. And they're getting upset. And so immediately we hear that they strip them in the marketplace and they beat them. And Luke tells us, remember he's a physician severely, so it must have been just a horrible beating that they received. They're thrown into prison. They're ordered to be guarded and the word that's used, guard them carefully, means that the jailer is responsible with his own life if something happens. They're put in the darkest, lowest region. And not only that, not only are they chained, but they're put in stocks so that their hands and feet are locked up after all that beating. Miserable. Not what they expected that day when they went to the place of prayer. They never had a trial. They never had a hearing. Everything that you see that just happened there in that situation in this city that prized itself of being Roman was a violation of Roman law. We've heard that before. Happens on Good Friday, doesn't it? Jesus is violated in Roman law time and time again with trials that shouldn't have happened and verdicts that shouldn't have taken place. It's not surprising That this would happen to Paul and Silas. That the same thing would happen. And so Luke goes on then. And he says this. About midnight Paul and Silas are praying. Now they're in this place of prayer. And they're singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners are listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And all at once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword. And he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. You know, as we've gone through this series, as we've walked through the book of Acts, we've seen God use different ways to release his servants, his people. We've seen angels come in and lead them out of prison. We've seen just simply without an earthquake, chains fall off. But here God uses an earthquake. Remember always, God isn't limited to one way when he wants to act in our lives. So if we don't see things happen exactly the way that we want them to happen, don't ever think that God's not working and that he can't work. He has many ways in which he works behind the scenes for us and this is just one of them. But you know that interesting thing I said to you that, he, that jailer was told to guard them carefully. That his life was forfeit if something happened. And there we see it. He realizes that the prison is open. And this plot of Satan. And I say that because Satan is behind the works of what's going on. He wants to stop this message from going out into the world. And so what we see happen to these guys is the enemy working behind the scene. But the jailer who is part of a pagan world really understands how that pagan world works. And to him, it's a hopeless situation. And in a hopeless situation with worldly wisdom, he only sees failure. And the only answer to hopelessness and failure in the world and still today is rush headlong into self-destruction. That's the answer we see so often. Then... And we see it unfortunately so often today. Businesses fail and people jump out of windows when that happens. Or they take their own life. Or relationships fail and we see them committing suicide. Or something doesn't go right in school and nobody likes me. And that's the answer. Rush headlong into self-destruction. Go there as quick as possible. Because that's Satan's answer to the world. And that's what he wants us to believe. But for us, as followers of Jesus, we don't rush. We look at the situation and we say, nothing's hopeless with Jesus. There's a moment to take for peace. There's a moment to take to think. There's a moment for grace. There's a moment for forgiveness. When all is lost, when hope is gone, Jesus is sure. There is always another answer with Jesus than self-destruction. Always. And that's what we're going to see. That's why Paul was so quick in this next section. He said, but Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You know, I would say here, never, never underestimate the power of our witness and our lives in the world just by doing what God would have us do. I want you to think about that witness for a minute. He's ready to fall on his sword this jailer. And Paul shouts as quick as he can, don't Do it, don't harm yourself, we're here. And you can see this, can't you? You can see the jailer coming in, dumbfounded to see all the prisoners there, the prisoners that were listening to Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns. And I'm sure the question, well, why? Why didn't you run? Why are you still here? And Paul being able to say, you know, we serve a God who's not a Roman God. There's not a bronze statue or a marble statue or somebody in one of your temples. We serve a living God, a resurrected God, the God of heaven and earth. And that's who we see. And he's more powerful than any of the so-called gods of Rome. And that's why we're still here. And that jailer's life was turned upside down from near death suddenly now to new life. And so that's what we see. He goes forward now into this world and he disperses that message that we're going to see in a few minutes and he wants what they have. And so he asks, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Kind of that worldly question. Me, what do I have to do? And Paul's going to say to him, there is no I in this. There's only this. Believe in the one Who brings and has the words of life. And that's what Paul says. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. You and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And to all others in his house. What is faith? Faith is simple trust in Jesus. It's not faith plus anything else. It's just simple trust in Jesus. Jesus has felt salvation Jesus gives it freely to the world. Jesus offers it to those who trust him. Trust is simply believing that what Jesus did on the cross accomplished what he said it did. Receive it or don't receive it. But that's what it is, it's no more, no less. To not believe it, to distrust Jesus, to reject it, is to say, I don't believe what Jesus did on the cross, accomplished what he said. That's what it is. It's that simple. It's nothing more. But that gift is offered to all as we see in this passage. There's no restrictions on it. There's no age limits. There's no magic formula to what you have to do. Jesus died for you. Trust him. Trust that he did what he accomplished. And that's exactly what we see because Luke goes on and says at that hour of the night the jailer took them and washed their wounds and then immediately he and all his household were baptized and the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God he and his whole household. In this pagan Roman world where they were proud to be Romans. Where they worshipped Roman gods. Where they believed that they were the rulers of the world. A jailer learned that there was one more mighty and powerful than all of that. It was Jesus who died for him and who he trusted. Because of the word of the Lord that Paul and Silas spoke to them. What a change from a dark world of despair to a world of light to a world of joy. From ending your life now to hope. That's the power of the gospel. The power that is still there that goes out into the world. Never underestimate what that word of life means and how it can transform people. Paul and Silas had in mind that day to go to the place of prayer. And their life took a turn that they never expected. And God worked in that turn and used it to transform other lives. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with peaceful and serene settings. But never think that God only meets you in those settings. God meets you wherever you are because that's the promise Jesus has made to you. To be with you to the close of the ages upon ages to meet you in brokenness and that's what i said to my friend that day i said you know when we gather in the church we don't gather just in peaceful and serene settings we have brokenness in our lives we have sorrow that we share with each other in hard times and the blindness of the world that wants to deceive us creeps into the church too But here together we are strengthened because here Jesus meets us with his gifts, with his grace, with his forgiveness through our baptism, through his supper. And Jesus is more powerful than all of those things combined in us. Because he can break the chains and he can meet us here and now and in the midst of our need. Not just in some wonderful, peaceful, serene setting, but in the midst of the trial and the heartache. And life is changed. And hope is reborn. And despair is transformed into joy. Because that's the power of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. That jailer went a new man. And he spread the word. And we see that word in all of Philippi begin to take hold. And people believe. And lives are transformed. And they still are today. And we have the privilege to know that hope in us. Will you pray with me? Jesus, what a picture of transformation we see as your word goes out and is dispersed into all the world. Well, Lord, it still needs to be dispersed. And we are the people who are privileged to take it. Either in the witness of our lives when somebody will ask, we can speak of who we serve, who has transformed us, And who gives us hope? Lord, may that message always be on our lips. May the transforming power of your love always move in us to reach the world. To push back the lies of the evil one. That hope is reborn and life is changed. We ask this in your name. Amen.